Taking Up Space is proudly supported by Cold Comfort, the ice cream of champions. Handcrafted with local, organic, fair trade, and recyclable ingredients right in the heart of Victoria. Vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and sugar-free options are available. Stop by the small, independent ice cream company with a conscience. Visit them online at www.coldcomfort.ca. You're listening to Taking Up Space, a program highlighting conversations on feminism from an intersectional lens. And I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. This episode features conversations on class, economic capital, and economic inequality. These conversations can often be overlooked in feminist academic spaces, but it is really important that we have them because class and class privilege weigh very heavily on whether or not marginalized folks can have a voice. So our panelists both share stories of feeling the pressure that class carries with it. All right, let's get started. Okay, so I'm really excited to have this conversation. With me on this panel are Sarah Graham and Sumbul Saba. Could you both introduce yourselves? So my name is Sarah. I'm a white settler who grew up on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. And I moved to the Kwangan territories eight to nine-ish years ago. And I've been attending the University of Victoria for the past four years. Um, I'm an undergraduate student studying political science. And I use she, her pronouns and identify as a cis woman. And I think that my like starting to think about social justice happened for me in high school through like volunteering with different organizations like Our Place. And I was also attending a private school as a scholarship student. And I became like really aware of my class status in relation to most of my peers that came from like a drastically different class bracket than me. And I think sort of like the next big realization and like how that profoundly impacted just like the way we walked through the world and the things that we thought about. And the next sort of like realization I had about class was learning about uh, intersectionality in like different academic settings and, and sort of like placing my own experiences and specifically like things that happened to me as a kid like related to like sexual assault and how that was like intimately tied to my class status and growing up with a single parent who had like like really limited economic like situation and how that put me combined with like my gender and my age in like really specific situations so I think it was like understanding how class and these other like identities impacted some like really hard things that happened to me when I was a kid. And then later I started getting involved with workplace advocacy through the Retail Action Network and supporting people who experienced injustice at work. So I would say that's sort of where I'm coming from at this point in relation to like class and all this stuff. I'm Sumbul and I've been on these unceded territories for the last five years. I was only supposed to be here for nine months for my program, but that didn't end up happening. I encountered interesting situations that forced me to stay here and learn from those situations. I am grateful 
that I'm still here though. And where am I coming from? London, Ontario. I grew up there. My parents immigrated to Canada when I was seven. And we moved to Toronto, where my grandfather's lifelong friend took care of us for a year. Even though we had the money to support ourselves, he paid for our apartment the first year that we were in Toronto and filled our fridge with food as well. It was quite humbling to be taken care of. So anyways, after our first year in Toronto, we moved to London, Ontario, and that's where I grew up. And I stayed there for 20 years and then moved here. So how did I encounter social justice issues? I think for me, it started during the Gulf War in Saudi Arabia. I'm Punjabi and living as a Punjabi person in Saudi Arabia, not being a citizen in Saudi Arabia, that was an experience of its own. I don't know how to describe it because would it be considered racism? I don't know. There isn't a word for this yet because we're not talking about this um, in this part of the world. What happens when people of color instigate violence against each other based on where they're from? So yes, growing up in Saudi Arabia with privilege, with a lot of money, but also realizing that we could lose that money anytime if the Saudis decide they don't no longer need my father working there. But also during the Gulf War, seeing Americans for the first time in person was interesting. They were there as allies, but I was so frightened of, um, I was frightened to see like the jeeps, the army jeeps monitoring Saudi Arabia. Anyways, it's it, it, it's quite complicated, but yes, uh, I'll leave it at that for now. Thank you very much. Uh, so let's talk about class and class privilege. Right now we have the space to have this conversation, but that is very rare in academic settings. Could you tell me why it's important to talk about class, especially in relation to intersectional feminism? Yeah, I think that one of the reasons that it's so important to talk about class in relation to intersectional feminism um, is because like the reading and learning I've done around like Kimberly Crenshaw's work, who sort of like like coined the phrase intersectionality, not that it hadn't been like like discussed or like thought about before. And I, for anyone who doesn't know, like Kimberly Crenshaw is like a really awesome scholar in the US in like Southern California. And she specifically does a lot of work around the like triple oppression that black women in the U.S. experience of like gender, race and class. So I think for me, that's like one of the reasons that I think it's really important is because like the work that this scholar did was like pointing to these three like axis of being like really important to understand that specific experience. And I think like as that's been flowered and added on to with things like ability and like age and experiences with colonialism, I think that like understanding how people's experiences are different and why like feminism needs to include all of those diverse experiences, I think understanding how class like intersects with those other systems of oppression is like really important. And what the scholars that like I'm trying to take leadership from are like, like telling me. I was sharing with a friend yesterday that my father, when he immigrated to, well, when he started the process of immigration from Saudi Arabia to Canada, he didn't even tell my mom um, that he had started this process. Um, and he, I think he mentioned it, 
he mentioned it a day before or two days before that, oh, we're headed to Cyprus um, for an interview. So going back to privilege and um, what I've learned about privilege is not to believe everything that you see. Mm. For me, growing up in Saudi Arabia, I have mentioned that I lived in a really beautiful home. I had access to very beautiful clothes, but sometimes there wasn't food in the fridge. And we were all very dependent on my father, who was the only one working in Saudi Arabia because the Saudi society is very male-dominated society. And what does that mean? Does that make me rich? I had resources that my father provided for me that made me look rich, but sometimes there wasn't food in the fridge. And then when we immigrated to Canada, my father didn't even tell my mom that he had started the process of immigration to Canada. And he told her, I think, two days prior to uh, the interview in Cyprus that we have to get the girls beautiful clothes because we have an interview in Cyprus so that we could start the process of immigration to Canada. That was the first time she was hearing about this. And then moving to Canada, again, not having any access to money, but my father made sure that we had beautiful clothes so that the outside world perceived us, my sister and I, and my mom as well, a certain way. But we were all so very heavily dependent on my father. So yes, with privilege, it's it's quite strange. If you look a certain way, it, does that make you privileged it's 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 a it's a very like intimate question mm-hmm. and i think that we we overuse it based on like people's skin colors and people's clothing and people it's very superficial we're not talking about it in a personal way through stories i think when we start talking about it through stories we start hearing the intersectionalities okay i i see the intersectionalities but we need to be listening for that And when we start using words like, oh, you know, like, I don't know, those very generalized terms, middle class, lower class, feminism even, uh, we stop listening. I think about this so much. One example in my life that I think about this is like when I was a kid, my mom and I always shopped at Value Village because that was like the only option. And I remember, yeah, being like really young and being at Value Village and it was great. It was like my favorite Saturday activity. But I remember like getting older and then starting to feel a lot of shame around that. And then all of a sudden this like thing happened in society where when I was in like grade seven, grade eight, all of a sudden vintage became like really, really cool. And then everyone was shopping at Value Village. And I had all this like social status because I was like, I know how to bargain. Like you want to go to Value Village? Like I'm going to find you like all the great stuff. And I think that then it became like so much easier to pass for like upper class just because of the way that it's yeah it became like trendy and cool to like look like vintage and like you had been like shopping at thrift stores which is almost it feels sometimes like this like move to be like associated as like not having class privilege because I think that that has a lot of like stigma in our society like rightly so and I also think a lot about how passing for for different class status is really connected to whiteness when I was in high school as like the scholarship student at the the fancy private school like it was people never questioned how I was there but my friends that were not white 
would get like this awkward second glance of like, oh, like you go to that school? And it was like harder for people to like reconcile that. So I also think this like passing for more like upper class or whatever is so like intricately connected to whiteness in many ways. Yeah, and there's binaries and dichotomies that are born out of that, Mm. uh, which makes me really uncomfortable because we're not listening anymore. We're seeing Mm. what we believe is true and that's based on stereotypes and assumptions, which is also very dangerous. Dr. John Burroughs says beware of a single story Mm. as well because if we start believing a single story, then we stop listening. Listening is very important. When we start listening, we build trust. We build relationships. We start understanding each other. In Pakistan, I didn't grow up in Pakistan, but I had the opportunity to visit several times in Lahore, Punjab, uh, where my family's from. Class is very in your face. You know what your neighbors are going through because everything is, our homes are so like they're built in close proximity. You can hear if your neighbors haven't eaten that day because you'll hear like the women talking about it. You'll hear the children talking about it. Here in Canada, it's much more hidden. Mm. It's much more private, which I don't know what makes me more uncomfortable. (laughs) Knowing the knowing that my neighbor doesn't have any food Today, I know that my grandmother made sure whatever she cooked in her home, she made sure to like share with the neighbors. But here, I don't have a relationship with my neighbors. And I do worry which one of my friends haven't eaten today. We, sh- we really need to start building trust in our communities so that we can start sharing mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. things to break down the idea of class that, yes, you can have privilege in one area of your life, you're attending university, but that also doesn't mean that you're like privileged entirely. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, you could be white, but that also doesn't mean that you're privileged entirely as well. As a person of color, um, well, wait, that I find that to be problematic too. I don't identify as a person of color. I should, I should clarify that. I'm a Punjabi person. I'm Muslim. I do experience sexism, which I think is tied with racism. And that does become a hurdle sometimes. Sometimes it be- works to my benefit. I've utilized those benefits as well how are south asian women seen i've played i've played with that there's a colonial narrative of how south asian women are perceived being dainty and being soft-spoken and having like really long hair and you know this this idea of you know the dancing south asian woman it's unfortunate but the narrative is very alive and how does that break down class well if you can speak to your boss in a certain way then you can work that to your benefit as well so we're not all victims um and seeing each other like that makes me uncomfortable too we're we're all quite resilient people in spite of where we come from um and what we've encountered as well and i mean going back to what you said about like shopping um at value village and how like that turned into I, I find mm. I'm listening to that story and thinking, wow, that sounds like it, it would have been quite empowering. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but 
No, no, totally, yeah. That one point, it must have felt really shameful. Mm -hmm. But then, like, oh, everybody's doing it, and ha-ha, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but also, how do our bodies become, like, products through class? If everybody's doing it, does that take away shame? Suddenly, like, oh, it's okay now. But is it okay? All those years that you had to go through what you had, to go through i also think it's okay for certain people to do it like certain people can like buy used clothes and it's cool and there's still like lots of people that like can't like that still seems like a marker of like not having class status which like i think it, that's connected to like whiteness but i also think that that's connected to age like i remember being a kid and it was like way easier for me to wear like used clothes and seem like cute and cool than for my mom like it was a lot harder for her and my mom like only ever wears the color black like strictly and I remember being a kid and being like mom like why do you only wear black she's like well because when I'm like buying used clothes it's easier if everything is the same color I'm not gonna buy an outfit that's like coordinated so if everything is just one color it's like easier to like make stuff match like yeah. so also like age comes into this and like race and like probably gender too you know like it's interesting and where we're going with this conversation clothes cl how clothes impacts our bodies and how we're perceived through our clothes as women uh, or as bodies that are perceived as women and how we would be judged or taken advantage of if we were dressed not in our private school uniforms mm. possibly i did also go to a private school in saudi arabia so mm. what would i like at home i was young i was very little i was a very little girl so i walked around naked at home or i wrapped myself around my mom's dupattas they're part of our cultural clothing you wear it on your head you wear it on your chest it's, so yeah this is what i did at home but outside like private school uniform or like very beautiful clothes so that in some ways those clothes protected me mm -hmm. you know oh, yeah the uniform yeah yeah as much as I like kind of hated it it was also great because it was like this total like equalizer like everyone yeah. was wearing the same thing although I could go on a huge gendered thing about how we had to wear skirts um something that I was like thinking about earlier in terms of like intersecting with other axes of oppression yeah, I think that class becomes so like compounded by things like citizen, like nationality yeah. and like migration. Like I think about like student loans and like despite the fact that like my, no one in my family like is able to support me with attending post-secondary, like it was relatively easy for me to access like student loans and just like thinking through, yeah, how like class, be, it becomes so like intricately connected with all those things. Um, when I first started university, my father was devastated and he withheld all the money that he had promised. He convinced my mom to come to this country so that my sister and I could get the best education mm. because my, my mom and her family were scared. Why was like my mom's husband wanting to go to Canada? And he knew how important education was to my mom. So he told my mom and her family that oh, the girls are growing up and they need the best education. Mm. So we came here and then my father withheld all the money because he was just so upset that I was starting first year at Brescia University College. 
I had no idea about student loans. And my mom did everything in her power to make sure that I didn't miss my first year. But how money is connected to patriarchy? Mm-hmm. Like suddenly being like a young 18-year-old who was heavily groomed by, like I, I was groomed by my father. He tried everything he could to like get me married at a young age. And he wasn't successful because my mom was always there to protect me as well. Yeah, not knowing anything about student loans, my mom had to call my uncle in Pakistan. She borrowed money from him so that I could attend my first year. And then I also got a scholarship. But my dad, when he went with me to pay for my tuition, he used that scholarship to pay for my tuition as well without asking for my consent. What is it that I wanted? I was so used to being so dependent on my father for money that I like I I was so confused and so lost and like why is my father doing this? I started working soon after and again my dad tried everything he could to like get me to quit my job. And he said, Sumbo, you're working at a call center. I can get you a job at Royal Bank. I go there all the time. He's an accountant. Um, So again, being like, I trusted my father. I I needed money um, because I needed to buy books that my dad wouldn't buy for me. He had always said that he'd like support me if I went to university, but I didn't think he thought that I could get into university. When I did, he completely stepped away from any responsibility that he said he'd always take, but he didn't take. So, yeah, that's why my mom and I were so shocked at the last minute tuition is due. Mm. I, like, what's going on? Um, why is my dad doing this? Yeah, so I quit my job that I started and I phoned my father and I said, I quit my job. So you said you could get me a job at Royal Bank. He's like, yeah, send your resume in. So again, like being completely betrayed, um, I don't know why he was so insecure about me having my own money. Mm. And it got my mom and I talking about all the years that my mom, all all the years that she had spent just begging my dad to bring food for like her and um, my sister and I. I I wish that Canada wouldn't just take in rich immigrants. Canada's taking in immigrants that are rich, but the money is being made by men. And these heterosexual relationships, in these heterosexual relationships, the women are heavily dependent on these men for that money. I wish there was much more of a nuance in immigration policies taking people into this country. Amazing. Thank you both for sharing so much. All right, so it's time for a little break. And afterward, we'll delve into more conversations on class with our lovely panelists. Up next, CFUV's production team has put together a spotlight on Victoria's community resource, Our Place Society. Stay tuned for that. Have you ever found yourself struggling to be able to afford housing? For Victoria's most vulnerable population, this is an everyday reality that takes a toll on one's physical, emotional, and psychological health. Anyone can, abruptly or over time, find themselves without shelter, whether that be caused by poverty, addiction, a medical issue, rising housing costs, or any other reason. 
When that happens, citizens of Victoria can turn to our place for shelter, sanctuary, and resources for survival. Our Place is a community centre serving Victoria citizens classified as working poor, impoverished elderly, mentally and physically challenged, addicted or houseless. They provide folks in need with a place to call their own while valuing unconditional love, hope, safety, teamwork and belonging. Along with serving over 1,600 nutritious meals per day, Our Place provides its users with a safe place to shower, transitional housing and shelter, a drop-in centre and community gathering space, activities, educational programs and so much more. For those who are struggling to find shelter, dignified spaces to satisfy basic human needs become out of reach. Our Place provides community members with hot showers, shampoo, conditioner, shaving equipment, and towels so that they can spend uninterrupted time refreshing themselves. Community members also have access to one-on-one -on -one psychotherapy sessions for mental health, acupuncture, acupressure, and chiropractic services for physical health, a veterinarian for pets, a team of specialists for dental and foot hygiene, and a handful of resources to meet an array of spiritual needs. According to Our Place, success is defined in many ways. For some people, it is finding full-time or part-time employment. For many, it might be moving on to further training or getting involved with the community through volunteer work. Yet for others, finding hope, developing their own voice, improving self-esteem, or discovering hidden talents and strengths becomes a definition of success. For those who look to take steps to hone their own success, our Place provides a 12-week program that teaches work and employability skills for volunteer or paid work. Participants of this program receive ongoing one-on-one -on -one support with a job coach throughout the program. And when ready, program staff will work with participants to find appropriate volunteer or paid jobs according to skill level and preference. This program is open to anyone who's been out of work for a long time, needs certification or courses for an employment opportunity or anyone who needs a confidence boost in order to find their own success. This is just a small sample of the many opportunities, resources, and services that Our Place provides to Victoria's most vulnerable community members. If you'd like to learn more about Our Place, you can visit the website online at www.ourplacesociety.com for more information. Interested in volunteering? You can connect directly with the Volunteer Leadership Program by calling 250-388-7112, extension 243. Our Place Society is located at 919 Pandora Avenue in Victoria and is open to folks of any gender, race, orientation, or ability. Break free from boring ice cream with Cold Comfort. Cold Comfort is a small, independent ice cream company right here in Victoria, with over 400 different handcrafted ice cream flavors inspired by everything from local fruit to local beer. Curiously flavored and locally made, they've been doing whatever the hell they feel like since 2010. 
Head on down and treat your taste buds today. Check them out at www.coldcomfort.ca. Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. This episode features conversations on class privilege and income inequality, and I'm joined by Sarah Graham and Sumbul Saba. Okay, so I gotta say, I'm so glad you both have so much to say about this topic. It's really interesting because, I mean, using this panel as an example, conversations about class seem like they would go over really well in an academic setting, and yet they never seem to happen. So could you explain to me why conversations on class are so overlooked in intersectional feminist spaces, especially academic ones? We benefit from the violence of society. What would like academia look like or sound like if no violence existed? This space exists because of extraction and what we extract from people's stories. And class is something that's extracted as well. My roommate was um, talking about a department in this university and how she being a gifted visual arts person couldn't stay in that department because of the way that some of the projects were being talked about a student apparently had taken pictures of people living on the streets. No consent. So there's that violence. This space exists because of that violence. We're sitting on violence. We're sitting on people's bones, indigenous people's bones Mm -hmm. as well, that we talk about. But what is it that we're doing about it as well? That recognition is there, but what else? This space wouldn't exist without violence. Yeah, I think I kind of have two thoughts about like class in like academia or like like feminist spaces. One thing I think about and I'm still like working through this and like open to a lot of like pushback. I think for a long time academics were specifically that's a position reserved for white men. And I think that like my understanding is like in like the 70s and 80s and like 60s is there were like a lot of white men talking about like class and like socialism and like all these things. And I wonder to a certain extent if like class is still conversations about class are still really connected with like white masculinity. And, and I think a lot about like when I was doing like workplace advocacy lots of like young people working in the restaurant industry like unions were like so far from something that they thought would like affect their life like to me it felt and this is just like anecdotal like it was like oh well that's something that like middle class like working like men associate with and like the history of the like labor rights movement was very much like like white men wanted to unionize it was very much like them first and often like pushing other people and even like white women too that were advocating for workplace rights often were doing that like at the expense of like women and people of color. So I think there's this like like connection that is like made and, and I think that that also like I'm trying to unlearn that because that erases the work of people like Kimberly Crenshaw or like the Combahee like River Collective which are like people who are doing like lots of non-masculine and like people who are doing work around that. And so that's something I just wonder about. 
And then I, I also think that it is being talked about. Like I was just reading Glenn Coulthard's like piece about for our nations to live, capitalism must die. Because anyone doesn't know Glenn Coulthard, like really well known, prolific indigenous scholar. So I think it is being talked about in some spaces. And it's just a matter, yeah, of like holding up and making sure that we're like also looking and considering that. You brought up something that we talk about and that that is an issue is mm. that this this space academia talks about, mm. not talks with or listens in. If anybody's listening, it's it's the students being talked to. Totally. Yeah. Um, not talked with mm. research is presented and extra this is all extractive research i am a graduate study student and my program looks to give to the communities so we take part in projects for the communities with the communities i'm not bringing this back to the university so how is this going to benefit me i'm going to get a degree I'm ending that extraction. I'm not going to talk about the people that I worked with because that would take away from from the work and the ideology behind the program. To give back without taking. Yes, if anything's going to change, I think we need to start bringing in people who are most impacted by class here in Victoria, BC, so that we're not talking about them. We're listening in those spaces and we're bringing the voices in and holding them up but for that to happen there needs to be trust and for that trust that could take some time i've taken some gender studies courses and i find that dr joanne lee practices this most encouraging the students to go out of the class and to come back and share And I do imagine that most more classes here at UVic may one day do this to go out, listen, and to bring back if there's consent to share so that we're breaking that hierarchy of class. Thank you. All right, so you both come from a background where classes affected you in one way or another, especially when you were younger, and it still affects you today. Can you tell me how capitalism, or the class system, functions as a system of oppression in your daily life, in your work, or personal life? I'm going to out myself. So, (laughs) a few years ago in London, Ontario, I started identifying as an anarchist, but I was still going to H&M. So you see the the hypocrisy right there of mm-hmm. like how class was like I could identify like, oh, I love this. So I'll make it mine. It's like a brand um, and it's replicating capitalism um, again. Oh, yeah, I'm an anarchist. Just like I wear Nike. But yeah, those are my own thoughts of activism and class and the hypocrisy sometimes of how um, labels are used or employed for your own benefit for my own benefit. That is heavily problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're absolutely right. I've lived that activist life and I'm ashamed, but I love sharing it because it keeps me humble that this is what I've done. Yes, I've encountered oppression coming from my own space and time, but I've taken up space as well by using anarchism. I'm a feminist anarchist without recognizing that like I'm contributing to violence in other parts of the world. I am complicit in that violence. And I'm like, I'm also very hypocritical. I'm a hypocrite. 
so yes i i remind myself these these things not to be a pessimistic or Mm -hmm. a cynic but to keep myself humble yeah i mean i think capitalism is just like alive and and well right now yeah it's interesting we haven't i kind of love that we like haven't talked that much about capitalism and have talked more about like class as like a social construct which i think is like really interesting i mean yeah like i believe that capitalism is alive and well and that it would be great if like it could end (laughs) but um (laughs) in the I, I also think these like conversations about not just the social but like the impacts of like class are like really relevant I just wanted to acknowledge that like capitalism is like one of the like major driving forces and like systemic things behind all of this and so I really like thinking also about like capitalism and class in activist spaces. Something I think about and there's this like loose vague stat I've heard a few times or like theory that like sometimes in like anarchist spaces where there's not like traditional processes for like how people get like promoted or like how jobs are distributed, they can actually like replicate racism and patriarchy even more than like quote unquote like formal regulated like like unionized environments and I don't really know where that comes from and I'm not saying that that's necessarily like true I just have like I've heard this as an idea and I think about how class comes into that when talking about like let's like get money for this project and then let's like give people like money to like work on it or whatever like rather than having like one person doing like full-time work let's get like a bunch of people doing part-time which like at first like that sounds great you know but then I think that like this like class stuff kind of comes in because for certain people like maybe they're on someone else's healthcare benefits but then other people like aren't and having this like part a bunch of part time like contracts, which is very common in our like neoliberal capitalist society means that they just like don't have health care. And I think that that like affects also like gender comes into that because then it's like people who are like expected to like want to have kids or like expected to be the ones to stay home or like take time off work if they were to like have a kid then it's like also these like workplace things of like being able to take like paid parental leave are like not there. So that's like one way I think that we have to be like aware of how like class and capitalism like come up in like spaces that are attempting to be like anarchist or like activist, but aren't like aren't always like responding or like understanding or hearing the needs of like everyone that's coming to the table. Wow, thank you. All right, so it's time for another little break. And after that, we'll return to more conversation in just a little bit. Coming up next, former Victoria Youth Poet Laureate Maida Chainska has shared some of her poetry for your listening pleasure. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Maita. I am a poet in this city, and I was last year's Youth Poet Laureate. Um, And this piece is called The Girls and Interior Decorating. Remember the rare times when love is kind and sneaks up on you like a blanket? Love smiles into the open air for anybody but pits itself in your stomach. That's when you knew your mother was telling the truth all of these years. You just had to wait for love to leave the form of prescription nymph and tired, worn-down girl. 
It wasn't meant to stay in a baggie you found on the subway, and especially not in the hands of a man offering the rocky hollow, stuffing up your nostrils and saying how he loves the carpeting of your insides. It has been a while since hardwood flooring was laid over your hidden, so you give it, and remodel, and weep for nothing but weeping. Love doesn't see this. It chooses to hang itself in the closet, move into the basement, take shape of beggars and pavement while it waits for your sobriety like a blanket, waking you from two hours sleep like an angel. Your teeth are grinding and mind racing and the girl is guilty and heavy and moving from body to body, replacing her carpeting and blaming nobody but time itself while love fumbles to the coffee shop two minutes, too late, but waiting for something. It will find you eventually. Your mother will have been right. I had a gut feeling that love is alive and breathing and waiting for me like a blanket to cover these upcoming winter months with honey and remodel the inside of lonely. Your daughter the writer. Anyways. I've been waiting, is what I'm saying. Waiting for the right painting or picture to float me to the intimacy in pen and paper, I have a gift to conquer. The words, like vodka, slipping and sipping from my teeth, and you, who dreams the same way I do, still with spills of fleeting feeling and intimacy in the deep murmur of not being. I am so tired of all this dreaming and not being and leaving for a chunk, coming back to the rut and seeing you in musty shower, steam sitting between us like a barrier, like our pasts and the indefinite future. Sometimes begging you to let it go, but under the hot water your fingernails stubbornly hold the outside in. I used to hold the world under my chin and in my holes and writings too. I used to find pride in the blemishes, come home to the madness, having a stiff understanding of what will be after this. Baby, this rhythm of waiting and contemplating and leaving for a sunbeam is wearing on me. Baby, I am too frazzled to write the letters while you still do, while everyone else still does, while my father feels his way into old age like grace at the end of a day while the girls in my life fight to love me and fight to feel me and fight me to leave me, I never stopped the suckling thing. I never stopped the clamp. I never stopped the religious hopefulness that somebody knows me better than I know myself, that the zigzagging of growing ends at the oak tree's feet and the novels under my name sit, stacked tall enough so God doesn't have to reach. The situation wasn't always this fragile. I have flashbacks of skinny mirrors and cello groans and the words like a hot potato bouncing out of me while I kick and scream. I get so lost in myself, I get so lost in the excuses and the woman asking and me telling them, the acting thing, the pretending, the rush of it working. My mother called me a writer in front of whoever and all I had to prove it with was the notability was the tricks and the treats and how easy it is to make the higher powers eat from my palm. I had everything to show for it but the headspace, the crumpled page, the agony and broken pens, my fingernails caked insane under the remains. I hope I find forgiveness in the outcasts that I cast myself into. 
the unreliability in my confession sessions. I hope I can forgive all the girls and let go of the clamp, leave it to pull and dangle. I'll walk into the new like a child, asking for spare rage and a shovel to cover my own grave. It is hilarious when it eats at you. Even more so when you eat at it, and it's just days of emotionless gnawing, days of unredeemable chewing. And nobody waits or wants or simmers the way they said they used to, the way you now do. It is mystifying when the clearing is fogged up and the light at the end is flickering and there are potholes in your man's soul. There are dishwashers in the hospital what an easy fix. Who made this? Who invented it? Who intended for this to be the way that it is? And who was the goddamn genius to smack it into you, right in the middle? Like some kind of homeless Moses, it's a fumbling act of returning to basics, which are cigarettes and sandwiches. No matter who you are or what you've done, it is MasterCard debt on cigarettes and sandwiches and the potholes in your man's soul. It's why you don't drive. You just patch together and hope it holds. Just sticks and stones and duct tape, a hot glue gun, a backspace. These cities are in heat. Horny streets, inappropriate relief. They're groping your orifices, solicitating reaction, a static connection, and is growing tiring to always be this itchy, to move around and to come back. How many of you are out there, sopping and unsure of why, molding malleable situations in your sweaty palms like putty until it is soft and droopy, finally unusable, and there is nothing in it left for you. And the people who said helped with your becoming recline into the blackness of whatever there is beyond you, now left with heavy limbs and bastards with their cruel tongues. It's hard not to beg at concrete on these kinds of Wednesdays, to chat up a mailbox just to see what it gets that you don't. But no man was born gutless, so there are still routines to maintain, and worshipping to abstain from, and colorless portraits to paint in, and loving to be done. There is always loving to be done, even when it is pathetic and motionless and girls are left as the men leave stainless. There is always potency in staying, so you do. You stay a little longer, unfold a little more disaster, and smooth it over. When this day is finished, and tomorrow comes, following the reoccurring dream of dying in an elevator, between destinations, where the sun sweats onto the gaping streets that you get to and get off on, and there are less people to meet than ever before, and the silence creeps into your open pores like forgiveness, forgive it. Hold it till it is sticky and place it somewhere safe where you can find it at a later date when the holes start closing and the itch stops imposing. Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. In this episode, I'm joined by Sarah Graham and Symbol Saba for a riveting conversation on class and economic inequality. All right, so then, um, based 
on your experience of being a class activist. What do those marginalized by class in Victoria need to continue conversations about class in intersectional feminist spaces? I'm still struggling, and I don't think that struggling is a bad thing from a spiritual perspective. Struggle is seen as honorable. My own struggles is the constant negotiation that I'm going in to a store because I really need something and not because I want to look a certain way. But then, yeah, it. you're right. There is that, am I doing this because I feel guilty? Mm. I have spoken to my uncle several times about this complicity he lives in Lahore, Punjab, and has li- has lived there his entire life. And I tell him all the time that the life that I have is because of his hard labor. I'm walking on his body. And it's all tied to nationalism and citizenship mm-hmm. and my passport, um, even though my uncle and I are the same skin color. So, yeah, this nationalist project of taking in rich immigrants who, from my experience, yes, my father had a lot of money. He didn't share that money. So this country basically took in a very violent and patriarchal man without, like, delving deep into, like, anything else about the family. All they saw was money. Yes, money is directly tied to this nationalist project and how do you break away from from that it's not just it's not just about not buying or not mm-hmm. or buying um it's it's much more than that i'm not sure what could be done because this is also like i feel so beyond me as one individual mm. um to address canada as a country that you're really like really gigantic corporation <laughs> who's taking advantage of so many people I think that, yeah, something I think about with like the local food trend is how like so where I grew up, I don't know this history that well. And it's also not my history, but I think that it's like relevant. Um, So from my understanding, there were like lots of farm workers who had come to like Vancouver and Richmond that were like Cantonese or from like different parts of East Asia or China and many of them were farmers and there was this like amazing like local food system in like the early 20th century in Vancouver that things were grown and then brought into like the downtown area and it was this like awesome local system (laughs) now that system is like basically like to a certain extent being destroyed in favor of like Whole Foods and other big like corporate organic retailers. And I think that this also becomes like really connected to like gentrification and like racism and like pushing people out of historic areas like Chinatown. And so, yeah, I think just like thinking about class, I think it's important that we in our rush to like be anti-capitalist that we're like thinking about the systems that are already there. Like the indigenous people in like these areas on like Wasanic territories have like had their own food systems for like time and memoriam and like we could be, yeah, I think it's important that we're not just like that I'm not as like a white seller just bringing in my own like whole food system that I like and then like pushing out these other systems that have been functioning for so long. So that's something that I think about about like capitalism and tools. I also think it's really important that like the conversation moves past like working class because I think a lot about like who that excludes like I think it's an a helpful and important like category of analysis and like people that are like workers and like engaging in like waged employment but I think that that like includes people that can't work or people that are like on disability or on like income assistance and when we're only talking about like 
workers, like how are we also advocating for those people? And, and that to me, I worry about myself about getting caught up too much in like workers and forgetting about like challenging capitalism, which I think is like exactly what capitalism like wants. It's like, let's like separate you and make it sure that it's like really hard for you to like work together and like build movements and like let, like like what you were saying earlier about like being an individual. Like I think that that's like, like capitalism wants us to like individualize, you know, like our problem. But also it's tied to identity as well. If you, if you don't hold a job, if you're not making money, how respected are you? Mm. So we're we're not just individuals, but we're also we've become products mm-hmm. and almost like robots. You do this for the country and you'll be rewarded through money and then you'll be given respect. Um, so with identity, there's social status, there's financial status, there's all these like statuses that you get. And if we just stop, taking part like what how would we stop even taking part in capitalism like our our university is an example of capitalism we pay money to come mm-hmm. here what do we do do we stop paying tuition all of us one day we decide we're none of us are going to pay our tuition and that could be like our way of telling the university that anybody's welcome here to learn and so that international students could also feel comfortable not paying tuition because they've already paid so much money to come here. Their parents have made, I don't know how many sacrifices to ensure that they get a good education. Isn't this university supposed to be about education, not about feeding the capitalistic machine? So I don't know. Could this be like something that we as students um, being in time and space, because this is one time and space that we're sharing, could this be something we could do? Just not pay tuition, all of us, one day? <laughs> and, yeah, I, I don't know. Where where do you start? Like, yes, you can grow your own food. Um, mm-hmm. But what about, like, getting to places? You need your car. Where is the car made? Who's making that car? Where do you get the oil for the car? Even if you get an electric car, that's still extraction of resources from a land that is not ours. Mm-hmm. It's It's a lot to think about. It's not just the thinking, like it's paralyzing Yeah. as well. It's difficult to breathe just <laughs> thinking about like, wow, could we just stop one day and say we're not going to take part in capitalism and that we're not going to like be of any class in capitalism? I think that that is a very difficult question, not just to answer, but to even consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think something that you said earlier actually about, and correct me if I'm like... <laughs> because I'm probably gonna quote you wrong um or if I'm misinterpreting but it was along the lines of like rather than like talking about or like talking at we need to be like listening and I think that's really like that really resonated with me and I think a lot about that too and like academia how it's often like one person talking to a class about for example colonialism or racism and it's like I think often that like doesn't acknowledge how much like knowledge everyone like holds and how much like lived experience so I think for me that just like really resonates as a way that we could be like yeah that I just want to like listen more I think that's such a like beautiful thing to to think about and and something that I also about class in terms of like how we can I'm kind of out of ideas about how to address class-based depression. However, I think that class can be like kind of a powerful tool for an entry into like anti-oppression, especially for people that are like, 
like that identify as or like perceived to be white cis men in our society. I think I've noticed like in my experience having conversations about like class and capitalism and class based oppression is like not only like like accessible in terms of like the language that we're using but also is something that like resonates with people because like a lot of people are oppressed by capitalism so I also think there's like benefit in like talking about class and how that can like start bigger conversations about anti-oppression and like help people to like like feel in their body what like that feels like to be like if someone's like oppressed by capitalism like to understand how that feels and then maybe have like greater like not that someone could understand necessarily another form of oppression if they don't experience it but like more like empathy so that's something that I also like think about what an awesome point to end on thank you so that concludes our conversation for this episode thank you very much to Sarah and Sumbul for coming in to speak with us today if you liked this episode, please subscribe to Taking Up Space. Rate us, leave us a comment, or review the show at www.cpbpodcast.com or wherever else you get your podcasts. This program was produced by myself, Alba Clevenger, Melanie Lum, and Max Collins. Our theme music is composed by Arcade Palette. This episode was created by CPB's production team, and if you want to be a part of making amazing programs like this one, head to cpb.ca to learn more. Taking up space wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our friends at Cold Comfort and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm Ambernice Thomas, this is Taking Up Space, and we will catch you next time. Cold Comfort is an ice cream store with a conscience. Crafted by ethically paid employees using local, organic, fair trade, and natural ingredients, Cold Comfort offers high quality, guilt-free ice cream. Ice cream is for everyone. They make dairy-free, vegan, and sugar-free options, as well as gluten-free ice cream sandwiches. Now that's some ice cream I can get behind. Find out more at www.coldcomfort.ca.